0: Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's Revenge? Daniel-san, you look Revenge that way. Start by digging to the grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle. Sooner or later, get the squish, just like grip. Well, hey folks, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 148! And today I'm going to uh, piss off everyone, because I'm going to talk about guns, and I'm going to give my opinion. So my opinion will be wrong, because your opinion has to be wrong when you talk about guns with anybody else that knows anything about guns, and the more you know, the more you will disagree. That's just kind of a constant with guns. Ask anybody what the best caliber is for fill in the blank, and uh, you will get almost as many opinions as you get people that you ask. And I'll say some things today that people will definitely disagree with, and uh, that's nothing new for me. So uh, let's start out with a question for the live audience. What was the first firearm you ever owned, and how old were you when you got it? It doesn't really pertain to my list here, uh, but it might change the calculus if you're, you know, a 13-year-old trying to earn enough money with a trap line um, to to buy the other things that you want. So that was me when I was 13 years old. I got my first real gun, and I don't mean your BB gun, I don't mean your... uh, your Red Rider or whatever, I'm talking about like your first gun that was a firearm that somebody put in your hands and said this now belongs to you. Mine was a Model 25 Marlin uh, uh, bolt-action 22 with a 7-round magazine fed, you know, in the bottom. And it was mainly because I wanted to go out and I wanted to earn enough money to buy a deer rifle. I wanted to earn enough money to go on some hunts. I wanted to earn enough money to have some money. And, uh, I, one way that I, I took the approach of doing that was as, uh, as running a trap line. So I trapped mostly muskrats and raccoons and, and things like that. A little bit of fox here and there when I got lucky. And uh, I made a pretty good living as a teenager running a trap line. Well, you're not going to be out running a trap line with a 030 unless you're an idiot. So I'm just trying to put some context in this uh, out of the gate. Because what I'm going to say is predicated on a few things. I am assuming that if you're making this list, you are an adult, and you have no guns. And if you already have some of them, then you you work from there. But I'm coming from that perspective. The other assumption I'm making is you live in a place in the country where you are legally allowed, one way or another, to carry a firearm on your human person, and that you're going to. That's why the first thing I have is a concealed carry, or a carry, even if you don't carry concealed handguns. And I think it is probably the thing that is the most important in the perspective that I'm coming from today uh, with owning firearms. In that, it is most likely the case that if you have to physically defend yourself with a firearm, it will most likely happen somewhere away from your home. That's if we just look at crime statistics in general. The number one places away from home, number two places home. You don't really have many other options. But the reason handguns exist is convenience. That is the reason handguns exist. They exist for convenience. And everything you come up with will be convenience. Such as, well, it's not legal for me to walk around with a uh, rifle on my back, but it is legal to walk around with a concealed 9mm. That's still a convenience, right? It's also not very comfortable ...to carry a long arm when you don't absolutely need to. There is no world in which the average centerfire rifle does not end more fights more quickly than the handgun. The handgun is probably the least effective tool that we have to make bad guys die with. But it's the most convenient. And if you think about that, that plays itself out over and over and over again in how we live our lives... Most of the things that we can do to remain as anonymous as possible online, we tend not to do because it's more convenient not to do them. We make these compromises in our life every day in all aspects of our lives. So when it comes to, if I'm going to go to the store, uh, I'm going to go down the street, I'm going to take a walk in the woods, uh, and I'm not hunting, like carrying a long arm of any kind of shotgun, a rifle, um, something like an AK, an AR, it doesn't matter. I, it's really not convenient. Anybody here that was in the military knows that you you kind of get tired of carrying that long arm around. Uh, during uh, World War II, there were a lot of GIs that really, really wanted you know the M1 carbine over the Garand, even though the Grand was a much better fighting rifle. You get tired of carrying that big heavy thing around, so the smaller and lighter is more convenient. So that's why we carry handguns. Number again, and I'm back to I think you're more likely to end up needing. A, a, a gun to defend yourself with away from home than at home. Even if at home, the reason I still put this as your first thing that you really need is, imagine you get a knock in the middle of the night on your door. You do not live where I live, where you have a you know a fence with August Maximus' running around in it. Um, you live in a normal place where people can just walk up to your door, and it's reasonable that somebody would walk up to your door and knock on or ring the bell because the car broke down, whatever reason it is. Like, this is a reasonable thing. Do you really want to go to the door at 10.30 at night with a shotgun in somebody's face? Having a handgun lets you be a decent human being in that scenario or any scenario like it, but yet be prepared to defend yourself if you need to. So I think even a lot of times in a home where, okay, it would be better to use a shotgun or a carbine or something for defense... The situation itself still dictates that the handgun is the weapon of choice. I mean, uh, I mean, if it's me, you're probably dealing with me with a handgun you can't see and maybe a wife with a shotgun and you don't see either one of those, right? But I, I don't want to have to take a long arm to the front door. So this is all in. The thing that is going to be most universal for protection is a handgun. And so that's where I'm coming at from today. Like, the things you need, not you want. I want to shoot a deer. I need to not die. Number two, though, is going to be the shotgun. And I actually have to think really hard here between one and two. Because the the gun that can do the most, period, is the shotgun. You give somebody, you know, a, a, a decent shotgun, pump-action and two sets of barrels, kind of like a uh, home configuration and a tactical. But if you want to go out in the field and hunt, you've got like a 26 or a 28-inch barrel uh, with multi-choke. There's literally nothing you can't do. I mean nothing. There is no animal on planet Earth that you cannot kill with a shotgun. I I would feel safer with a shotgun Pumped up with good old-fashioned 75 caliber, you know, ounce and a quarter, ounce and a half, whatever they are, foster slugs. Uh, if I had a charging cape buffalo coming at me, then a 030 You're talking about a big old hole that doesn't stop. And yet, I can knock a squirrel out of a tree with it and not ruin the meat if I use, you know, like six shot. I can hunt doves with it. I can hunt a deer with it. Um, I can certainly defend my home with it. If, you know, if, if there is a thing that if pointed at a human being causes that deep primal sinking feeling in the guts, it's a 12-gauge. It's a 12-gauge. There's a lot of mythology. If you aim anywhere within 50 feet of them, they're dead or whatever. It's all stupid. We all know that. But when you see a 12-gauge pipe pointed at your face hole, you tend to think, I've messed up. So it's a defensive tool. It's a tactical tool. It has the most diversity of any weapon ever created under the sun. So it's really hard for me to put the handgun above it. But when it comes to convenience, you don't just walk around with a Mossberg 500 on your back. You know, and go shopping down at friggin' Piggly Wiggly or whatever. So that's, that's why I've, I've kind of gone there. If you could only have one gun, and I just had that question in the live chat there... I would own a shotgun if I literally could not have but one. Because it will do the most. Next, this is this is where it starts to get hard for me. I'm going to move on from this point to the 22 rifle. And the reason I'm going to go with the 22 over the center fire hunting gun that comes next is simply the case that since the shotgun will kill a deer, the shotgun will kill a bear. The shotgun will kill an elk. What I need now is the ability to reach out further on small game, I need the ability to be really quiet, and I need more versatility. And I also need the ability to train. And I don't think there's a better tool for training the marksman and the inherent rifleman out of the gate than the twenty two. So you notice I'm not giving you models here, but if I have to pick, it's hard to beat a Ruger 10-22 on this one. Uh, my first was a Marlin Model 25, like I said. I don't think they... They make that particular model anymore, but they basically make the same gun, you know, a, a bolt action. A bolt action is probably better for training. It's better for training because it is inherently discipline instilling. And what I mean by that is if you're shooting reactive targets, say you set up a bunch of reactive, you know, targets about 25 yards out, you've got your 22, and you're, and you, you knock that target down, and then you miss. Having to work that bolt. Come back to bear on the target, take that next shot, requires you to accept, I missed. When you're firing a semi-auto, I'm sure many of you have experienced this, bink, you hit, bink, you hit, bink, you miss, bink, you hit. You you know, you don't get the negative feedback because of the swiftness of the follow-up shot. That means you blow through more ammo, you waste your practice to a degree until you develop self-discipline on your cadence of fire. Um, I, there is no doubt that a semi-auto rifle is a better overall tool, but for that initial discipline training, if you are a new firearms owner, it's hard to beat a bolt action and you can always add a semi-auto later down the road. Next would be a good centerfire hunting rifle. Now we could cheat here because if you live where it's legal to use a semi-auto rifle for your hunting rifle... Then you could go to like the AR ten platform and use 308 and then you got both. But we're not going in that world. We're going in a world of I've got to make I c I don't get to cheat that we have to make the decision here. The reason I feel that we would go to the center fire hunting rifle next is it gives me the greatest amount of utility for overall needs versus some Red Dawn fantasy I live in where the blue helmets from the UN are going to come and my buddies and I are going to get together and form a militia and fight back. If you believe that's about to happen tomorrow, then you should probably put a good semi-auto tactical-style rifle at the top of the list, maybe the handgun and then that, right? I don't believe in that. I don't think that's likely to happen. I'm a huge advocate. Uh, I own more than my fair share of all of these frames. I'm not putting the last one down, I'm saying when I look at it from a standpoint of what do I need to give myself the greatest flexibility and ability to acquire game food and protection if I have something like a, a model 70 Winchester or a Remington 700 or uh, you know a Ruger bolt or, or something like that um, in 308 in 30 odd six and 270 you name it pick your pick your kind of mid To large bore hunting caliber, 27, you know, even a 2506 or something. I think you're, if you're only going to have one, I think you're going too far down that end of the spectrum. But say you're 270 up to like your 35 Whalen, 33806, 338 Winchester, anything in kind of that realm, you now have the ability to hunt big game beyond the range of the shotgun, and you have a long range defensive rifle, aka a sniper rifle. And I don't think that's actually highly likely that you'll ever use it for that purpose, and that's a good thing. But should the worst occur, you now have the ability to take out targets well beyond 300 meters, assuming you're up to the task. So I think that, to me, goes before the AR, the AK, take your pick, fill in the blank, because, again, we're starting out as a person who has nothing, and we're developing skills and technique and resources along the way. And then last, I would add a semi-auto rifle. Again, this would be your AR, your AK, what have you. And to me, those are your two platforms that that most people should be picking from. I know there's the FNFAL people and whatever. And you can have anything you want. I I am not a platform snob, and I am not a caliber snob. Um, I I think that there are people that would make a really credible case that we should take this semi-auto tactical-style rifle and we should move it way up on the list to where it either is, you know, first or second. And I can understand why you would feel that way. I just having grown up in a household that owned every every male in my family owned guns. Um I was cleaning hunting rifles and shotguns. I got to do it as a little kid. Like when I was like eight nine years old and i wasn't old enough to go hunting and my uncles would go hunting or something they'd come home that once they made sure the weapons were clear and they made sure i made sure like that they were clear and that nothing bad was going to happen i was cut loose and i got to clean the guns and coming from that background when i look at what actually was necessary that's where i come up with this this order And I would say that a person with a twenty-two, a centerfire rifle, and a shotgun is in great shape as well, even though I put that handgun up at the top of the list. I do think that it is a reasonable assertion that if you look at it across, let's say, every 1,000 gun owners, that at some point out of that group, there will be several, not just one, who will at some point in their adult life be fortunate to be armed at a time when their life or their safety or their property or the life, safety, and property of another is at threat. And that's why I have to put that handgun on the top of the list. Because it is the most versatile tool for self-defense. I'm sure many of you probably uh, probably disagree with the order that I came up with, but that's that's my mindset. First of all, to be able to defend yourself, your property, your person, and the people around you. And the handgun, the most versatile for that. The second most versatile for that in home defense situations being the shotgun. And then giving all of the field capability that it, that it provides. Uh, going on from there, realizing that since I already have the ability to take big game, it's probably better to expand my ability to take small game and to train and, and hone my skills with a .22. Moving on to, again, that center file rifle. And, and putting the thing that everybody loves, including me, as dead last in the order of hierarchy of most likely need. The other side, when you need that tactical rifle, nothing else is as good. So I will admit to the limitations of that. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Mornings for you. Well, hi, folks. Jack Spierko here with Miyagi Mornings, episode 149. And... Uh, this is going to be a good one. I started getting a lot of deep concern from people in the crypto space. Again, forgive the haircut, those on the live stream, or forgive the lack of a haircut. Uh, I didn't get a haircut during my bout with the COVIDs, and uh, didn't want to infect the people doing the haircutting, So uh, I am ready to uh, to get that done sometime this week and maybe look a little better for you. Anyway, um, since this infrastructure monstrosity nonsense came out and Remember, no matter what I say that might mitigate a thing or say it's not as bad as you think, I hate all regulation coming from the state. Um, I don't think we need another law about anything at this point. We have more laws than people can possibly keep track of. There's no need for any new laws on anything at all, period. So nothing I'm saying is pro-state or pro-law. It's just pro-reality. So in this infrastructure bill which is like trillions of dollars and only like $500 million for actual infrastructure. You know, my roads, my, my bridges, and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of bullshit. And one of the things that's in there is some crypto regulations, because of course a crypto regulation belongs in an infrastructure bill. Sure it does. And the way it was written initially was very broad. And so basically it said if you're engaging as a broker... In cryptocurrency, which means you're facilitating and acting as a counterparty in transactions that, well, you have to do KYC with everybody that touches your thing. The problem with that is they weren't real specific about what that meant. So you would start to say, well, what if you are a wallet provider? Does that make you a broker? You know, if you're Jax or if you're uh, Exodus or whatever. And you're nodding, you're not... You know, right now those guys have KYC if you want to use their exchange features. But if you don't, then you just use the wallet. Like, is a Lightning Node operator a broker? So they came back with some new language that basically said, no, those people are not brokers. A broker is a broker. We all know what a broker is, but here, let us define broker for the purpose of this. And in that, the new regulations in this bill really are the existing regulations. Right now, if you act as a broker, you already really need to do KYC. There's a few people in some little loopholes in the U.S. that if you're not changing dollars into crypto and you're under a certain amount of transactions and withdrawals per day, they, they, they fall in this little hole and it may close that hole. Most people doing that already are not operating in the United States as it is because they're smart. So... It's a whole bunch of nothing at this point. It does show that they continuously want to come in and mess around with our crypto and our ability to freely transact in crypto. But as you see, the uh, the title of this is that the government keeps making crypto stronger, and then in parentheses, unintentionally. It's not their goal to make crypto stronger. But literally everything they do makes crypto stronger. If they do nothing at this point, it makes crypto stronger because they don't impede it and it's in a natural growth cycle and it's in a natural adoption cycle. So it gets stronger. If they attempt to impede it, then you're talking about tens of thousands of people, dozens of credible projects. I think Bitcoin is the project, the most important one, the one everybody should own. And I think that there are thousands of altcoins, and most of them are fundamentally worthless, but there's a lot of good ones, too. You know, it's a minority, but it's still a lot. And when you add that up, you have, again, tens of thousands of really smart people constantly dropping code and coming up with new solutions. So I'm going to switch gears for a second, and I'm going to tell you the story way way back when before any of you knew who I was well very few there's a few people that actually have followed me from my old life into TSP and have been around that long more than 13 years now but at one time Jack Spirko was evil in the world of search engine marketing and I mean really evil I mean I was under every definition of the word a black hat search engine optimization expert And I went out and I did things that did this, I'm giving double middle fingers, to Google on a daily basis and dared them to do anything about it. Which eventually they did. But until they did, I made a lot of money. Here's just one example. I used to sell long distance phone service when people actually cared about long distance phone service. So we're back in the 90s now. And I realized that people searched for phone service, whether they needed to or not, local and long distance, and cell phones, and pagers, and everything like that, based on where they lived. Remote internet access, etc. Like, And that would be by country, but people would say like local phone service or long distance phone service for Chicago, Illinois. So I took the entire postal database and downloaded it into my own flat database, a SQL database. So then I could put a variable using some very... I wasn't a great programmer, but I I knew how to do some basic stuff, like how to call from a database with PHP code. So then I could write a thing that says, if you're looking for local phone service in, insert here, and insert here would pull Chicago, Illinois, Aberdeen, Maryland, Jacksonville, Florida, you get it? Like 55,000 locations out of the postal database, and then auto-generate a page for every single freaking uh, city and state combination in the country. The problem with that would be that Google would immediately look at it and go, these are 55,000 identical pages with one variable, and therefore they'd lump you in, even back then, to duplicate content filtering, and they would throw out your entire site. Oh, okay, fine. So what I did is I also made another database, and I went out and got hundreds of technical articles. Articles that seem to have a correlation to anything to do with technology, like, you know, a newspaper article about uh, local phone service, or uh, an emerging computer technology, something that wouldn't be out of place. The verbiage would be enough in sync with the concept of phone service that it would seem relevant to the algorithms of the day. And I took all of them and broke them down to, let's say, 60-word snippets. And By doing that, you end up in a situation where you have like the 60 words, the first 60 words, and then read more, and then it would link over to the source article. So if it was in, you know, a, a technical blog, it would go there. If it was in a news website, it would go there. And I made those all go in a database. And then on every page, I took the content that was optimized for the search engine. Don't worry, this is gonna come, this is gonna all make sense here in a second as to how this applies to crypto. I had this Text, and then I knew the total word count. When you put, if you put in 460 character, uh, 460 word um, snippets, that's 240 words plus how many words here. And then back then, if you wanted your, you wanted your keyword density at 1.33%. So I'd make sure that you know Chicago local phone service was in there a certain amount of times. That and then all the pages had this number of words, and then they were balanced by this number of this dynamic content. And there would always be 1.33%. So what happened was, if you went and, s- and I had like dozens of these sites uh, on different servers and for different services, like again, pagers, cell phones, local phone service, long distance phone service, uh, stuff like that, remote internet access. I did the same thing with every country in the world uh, for people that traveled. C- calling cards, I did it for every country in the world. And so if you searched for any of that, like, some of the results on the first page of Google and the other search engines, like, ask Jeeves back, that's how old this shit is, uh, would be me. And then I started running their own advertising on their own pages, so if you didn't buy for me and I didn't make money that way, I made money b- moving the traffic around in between my own sites. And I was in, this is evil, okay? This is evil. This was an exploit of a flawed technology. If you try to do anything I just told you today, it will not work. Google will spot this almost instantaneously and delist and duplicate filter content that stuff. It worked for about six years. And in those six years, I made lots of money doing this. And when they changed and got better, I changed and got better, and I became really, really good at the fundamentals of search marketing by doing all this. And that's part of how TSP became so successful when I launched my podcast in 2008. I didn't black hat TSP, but I did optimize TSP. Make sense? And I knew all the shit that would work and not get penalized because I'd been doing it for so many years. But people like me, the evil bastard black hat SEO people, We're why SEO, or we're why Google's algorithm is so good today. Now, I know they do a lot of nefarious shit. They filter conservative. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the basics. If you want to find something, as much as I hate Google, there's times when I swap off of DuckDuckGo or PreSearch or whatever because I just can't find what I'm looking for, but I throw it in Google, and bam, I have it. How did Google get that good? Eventually, they stopped hiring freaking... Interns for minimum wage to do what they called no shit they called it hand jobbing right because what they would do is they would find sites like mine and they couldn't fix their algorithm so they'd go in and they'd hand job the site out now like I said I could spin these sites out over and over again once you had everything set up you could just basically deploy it on a new domain So I'd be constantly deploying new versions of these sites with updates, and they would constantly be hand-jobbing them out. Somebody would find, oh, I I recognize what this is. And eventually they developed a technology that they didn't have to pay that intern to do anything. They actually fixed the hole in their own algorithm. And that was like an arms race of technology. Well, that was me, little old me, against a corporate giant in Google. And it took them six, seven years to do it. Okay, now... You think the United States government is as competent as the coders at Google? Do you really? And it's not just little old me. And see, the thing was, people like me, we shared our information with other people, and everybody was playing the same game. There were tons of people doing this. I'm not the creator of this. I I learned how to do it with PHP because it was easier than ColdFusion. The guy that taught me used ColdFusion, but it did the same thing, right? And, again, it worked for six, seven years, Against Google. Now, imagine that you have millions of me's, everybody taking different approaches, using decentralized instead of centralized technology, and your enemy, your foe, the one trying to um, actually stop this movement, which is cryptocurrency as a whole, Bitcoin as the core. And all of us are using these different advancements, technologies, blockchains, DAOs, all these different ways of combating them. See, so once you get into that place, the more they do, right, they become the agitator. And then the blockchain technologies, the crypto technologies, etc. become the adaptogen. They're the ones that, so now, all of a sudden, you have thousands and thousands of really smart coders, way smarter than me, going, oh, I see what you did there. Um, Here's what we're going to do in response. And so the more aggressive they become, the more rapidly the code, think of it like a virus mutating, mutating to adapt around the defenses of the system, and We have to stop having this hyper-competent view of government. Government is incompetent. Government is inefficient. Government is needlessly bureaucratic. Government is inherently weak at adaptation. Look how long they've been trying to get anything meaningful done, and they're kind of right back to where they started. Basically, almost all of the regulations around crypto in the United States right now are all just interpretation of existing uh, regulation and how it applies to things like commodities and and assets and, and, and things like that, right? So, like, even this new thing is really just more of the old thing with some clarification. Again, I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying this is as much as they've been able to do to what is honest to God, publicly, public enemy number one to their paradigm. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a whole is public enemy number one to the state it's systems and the bank oligarchy. There is nothing that has ever existed in humanity that is a bigger threat to their way of life than this. And they can't, they can't get their hands around it because it will never stay stationary. It will never stay as this thing that you can regulate. By the time you get to regulating it where it is, it's not there anymore. It's an impossibility. The government can win any arms race with things. With something physical. If you can build it, hold it, touch it, move it, store it, then the government can beat you because the government has unlimited resources to print and steal money to pay people to build it. Code is different. Code is, is cumulative. Once a certain amount of work has been done... This group over here can take all that work and start from this base level and go beyond it while the government's still trying to get approval to catch up to where they were. There is no way you win this arms race if you're the state. So what you have to start doing, and you're starting to see it now, you move into a co-opting mechanism. Just like when, I mean, think about it this way, like everything's a pattern and every pattern repeats. Remember when, way back, and this is like back at the beginning of the Survival Podcast, like 2008 era? Remember when the Tea Party started? The Tea Party, the Tea Party. And I went to one Tea Party event and said, it's dead. It's dead. And the reason it was dead, Republicans co-opted it. It wasn't supposed to have a damn thing to do with Republicans. It was nothing about Republicans in the initial Tea Party for like 57 seconds. The Republican Party looked at it. We can't beat it. Let's own it. And they ruined it. It started off with, we're taxed too much, we shouldn't be, and we should revolt against being taxed. And and like weeks after it started, I go to a Tea Party event, and I listen to some freaking politician sound like a freaking preacher in a church condemning the sin of sodomy. Which I'm not really interested in, one way or the other, but at that point it was like, okay, this thing has been co-opted. So that's how all of this works. When you can't beat, beat them, you join them or you co-opt them. And so what you're seeing now is how can we stack the deck to most benefit the billionaire class that funds us in cryptocurrency? And you don't you don't do that by trying to make it go away. You do that by trying to push out as many people from the lower rungs of the of the the caste, see, we have a caste system in the United States. Well, the, Our difference from our caste system and a caste system like in India is our caste system is a lot more fluid. Our caste system is broken simply by the accumulation of wealth. And you have the ability to accumulate wealth. It's the, the, the poorer you are, the harder it is, but it can be done, and every time you move up a little, your ability to move up becomes easier and easier and easier. Right? So, but we still have a caste system. And what they want to do is they want to make it to where the poor person can't afford to participate in Bitcoin the way poor people in El Salvador are doing right now. That advantages the billionaire class. And that's what they're going to do. And they still can't win. Because here's what I'm about to describe it's in the notes. It probably already exists. It doesn't really matter. It could probably be better. The point that it can be done. Is that what matters though. So let's say that they get into a point where they get much more tight on KYC regulations. So they make it almost impossible for you to keep your assets private and personal if you're using any sort of a broker, even you know what we would think of like an offshore DEX or something like that. Well, the truth is, and this is why I love Jack Maulers and what he's doing with strike. Not everything, but I love the philosophy. We are in a race to zero. We are in a race to zero where there is no direct cost to the user for the service that they're using. Now, there is an indirect cost. So let's say that I send you a Bitcoin tomorrow because I'm a nice guy. Don't wait up, okay? But I send you a whole Bitcoin. And we're both using full node wallets, and I send you a transaction, and you get the Bitcoin. And there's a fee that comes out of that Bitcoin, right? But who gets it? Some miner somewhere, sometime, someplace. And even the miner that's going to be compensated doesn't know it's them until they win the block and it happens. So there is no cost. Now, if we're using some sort of uh, an exchange, and the reason I sent you a Bitcoin is you bought it from me and I wanted to hold a stable coin. So you send me uh, USDT, Tether, because I wanted to lock in my profits and you wanted to speculate on Bitcoin. Well, now there's this broker in the middle. And that broker takes, in addition to the network fee, which is decentralized, they're taking a fee, which even in a decentralized exchange is still centralized and that there's an entity that's collecting that fee, in return for the service of facilitating the trade, i.e., a broker, in, in the words of this new language, you know, if they're US based and if you can prove they're doing business with US citizens knowingly. Okay? So there's a giant loophole there, but th- that's what they're saying. And, and what that means is even if you are a decentralized exchange and you're not doing KYC and you don't give a shit about this and you're located in UAE, but you're owned at least partly by a US citizen and that US citizen ever steps foot on US soil, you can and have. And there has been cases where that person's been arrested because that person is directly profiting from providing the service, and therefore it falls under this code. Follow me. Does this make sense? All right. Now, here's the here's the other side of this though. What if there isn't anybody? What if this is run sort of like a decentralized Dex DAO, right? Like a DAO, decentralized autonomous organization. What if every single person that's participating in providing the network is somehow compensated based on their participation? Think about it like, you know, Coinex has Coinex coin, uh, Binance has Binance coin. They have their own crypto. Now, again, you're back to a centralized. You can say these people own it, but let's just look at that model, and nobody owns it. And so we have this kind of internal crypto, or maybe an existing crypto. We don't always need a new crypto, as I said. And by providing the service of providing a node, which is an encrypted node on an encrypted network, you're compensated for whatever you contribute to facilitate exchanges on the network. But no one knows who you are. In fact... You know, Bill Smith becomes 01795 Lima Echo Charlie Zulu199310 on that network. And we use things like onion routing and stuff like that that I won't get into today to preserve that anonymity on that network. And then Bill is basically buying and selling and trading cryptocurrency. Maybe initially, maybe eventually Bill is buying and trading and selling anything he wants to for cryptocurrency. And maybe everything's run by smart contract. You see, what got Silk Road into trouble and Ross Albright into trouble was what? He was actually taking the responsible uh, position and saying, oh, I'm not going to let that go onto the network. But I am going to let this go onto the network, hence you were then allowing illegal activity. That's how they actually got Ross. I'm not saying they should have. I'm saying that's how they did. What if the network was self-policing? Oh, This is a contract for murder. Throws it out, right? This is a contract between two people that want to exchange a plant for cryptocurrency. We're not going to get involved with that. But who made that decision? The network did. Does anybody on the network have the power of veto or override individually? No. Who are the people? We don't know who they are. In fact, we don't know who we are. I don't know you. You don't know me. It's just a network. It's just code. Good luck with that. And what if that runs on IPFS? What if it runs in a way that makes it where even ISPs can't filter it? And what if it runs in some sort of rotational pattern where any node um, actually looks like it's over here through VPN technology, but that same node the next day looks like it's over here, and it looks like it's over here, and it looks like it's over here. And those resources are only pulled as needed from wherever they're needed at random. See, and I'm not even really that smart. And I'm coming up with this shit, and there's nothing I've spit out today that is beyond the capability of technology that we already have. And and again, it doesn't matter if that becomes a solution or not. All that matters is One dude can sit down and go, oh, you want to do this shit? You want want to fuck around? Okay, here, now what, bitches? And the more they push, the more this happens, and the less control they can exert. What governments have learned in history with things like tariffs and duties and imports and taxes, now occasionally they lose their mind and go stupid, and they, they create a giant black market, But mostly through history, governments have figured out that when you get to a certain point in an economy of something, that the best thing you can do is lightly tariff it, lightly tax it. Do it in a way that the average vendor, the average person, the average merchant, the average participant says, you know what, I don't like this, but this is so menial in the whole that I'll play the game by your rules, because then I don't have to take a risk. And as you ratchet up that that nefarious, you know, basically theft of other people's property, what happens? More and more people migrate out of the regulated and move into the gray and the black markets. And crypto is a place where you will never stop this, and I'm going to end today with a story from Michael Saylor. And this shows you how powerful crypto is as a tax avoidance strategy. So people worry they're going to they're gonna property tax crypto. Good luck property taxing information and code that we can move around anywhere we want. And basically claim it's custodied somewhere, even if it's self-custodied, that's not under your authority or regulation. What do you talk about was how people think real estate's a great investment, but see, I can tax your building. I can tax your building. You buy a building, I tax it. You buy a piece of dirt, I tax it. You don't want to pay the tax on it? I seize it. You don't want to pay a tax on it? You have to sell it. When you sell it, you pay a tax on the income. Do so you see how you're trapped? And he compared this, to this was either Cyprus or Greece or somewhere like that, to this one city or town, and they were a real place for the wealthy, the uber-wealthy. right? What we call whales in the world of Bitcoin, like the billionaire class. And the billionaire class loved this place. And they vacationed there, and they hung out there, and they all bought giant yachts. And then this beautiful port, and these massive, like, blue-water, ocean-going yachts filled the port and very rarely left. That's something people don't realize about billionaires and their yachts. Generally, yachts are a place to party and have fun and live and stay, and they put them in a place so that they can have a presence there. They don't spend a lot of time sailing them around. Well, this city, township governed area, whatever you want to call it, went you know, all this money here we'd like some more of it because government always wants more money so they're like, I know, we'll put a property tax on the yachts, just like we do with buildings and the billionaires will have to pay the tax because if they don't, we'll take their yachts and billionaires don't like to lose lot, lot, yachts what do you think happened? a few days before the tax was to go into effect, all of a sudden those yachts that never tended to really go anywhere, what do you think they did? They left. All the billionaires got together and looked around at other port cities and towns and said, hey, where are we going to go next? And they moved their yachts and they took all their fucking money and all their fucking yachts and they fucking left because the yacht, unlike a building, can move. Now it still costs money to move that yacht. Right, so there was a threshold where it would cost me more money to move that yacht than the savings and tax over, let's say, the next five years. I'm probably keeping my yacht in place. But when they get greedy and they exceed that formula, what do you do? Uh, uh, come on, Captain, we're leaving now. Again, you have to have a. You're talking about. You're not talking about a motorboat here, right? You're not talking about a little thing you just jump in and haul ass with. You're talking about. Mega yachts, like captain and crew, that you've got to pay to move this thing. You're talking about a docking fee, maybe a departure fee. You're talking about significant effort. You're talking about risk. When you take a yacht to sea, even not very far, it runs the risk of being wrecked or something, or pirated or whatever. Now you try to tax my cryptocurrency. What cryptocurrency? What cryptocurrency? Oh, you mean the cryptocurrency that I'm currently holding in Cyprus? If I have it at all, I'm not sure what you mean. I don't have any cryptocurrency. I know some numbers. No, you can't have them. You mean the cryptocurrency that I can get on a plane, step off in another country, enter some characters into a wallet, and have my money there? That crypto? No, you can't have that. Way more mobile than a yacht. Way more mobile than gold. Way more mobile than land and buildings, for sure. Way more mobile than cash you have a million dollars in a U.S. bank account and you want to get it out of the United States, good luck. Even if you do, they're going to get their piece of it before you get to go. You have a million dollars in Bitcoin and you want to go somewhere else with it, you can have it all here. And the harder they push, the more the technology will be leveraged. And the more ungovernable the technology will become. And the bigger the government the more this is true. With that, we'll go ahead and wrap up today, and I'll be back to you tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. That was a long one. Hey, folks, Jack Spirico here with episode 150 of Miyagi Mornings. Today, we're doing a rapid-fire Q&A on a variety of questions that came in from Float and MeWe uh, on cryptocurrency. Uh, I did a post yesterday on Float, this morning on Miwi, You may have posted your question After I did my notes today, if so, it's not in there. If your question was there when the notes were there, I'm answering it. It didn't matter what they were, I'm answering them all, except for the one that I already answered yesterday, uh, in yesterday's episode. I didn't want to rehash that out, since we're doing two crypto episodes in a row. Why the hell are we doing two crypto episodes in a row on Miyagi Mornings? Because you guys have a lot of questions, and I get a lot of interaction on the crypto videos, so that's what we're doing today. Um and i 'm going to try to answer these questions as direct and quick as possible and keep this episode under twenty minutes. Additionally, I have simplified these questions. Some of the questions came in like blah 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 and it's me and it 's all about me and my thing and then there was this thing and then it happened to no we got to make this generic so everybody that gets the answer uh, says, oh, I can use that that 's now knowledge I can add to my quiver or to my uh, you yeah, to my quiver of knowledge another arrow that goes in my quiver of knowledge all right so um, the first one is, if you buy from a know-your-customer exchange, that's KYC, meaning they have your your personal information so that you can buy, you know, for cash or what have you, or just because they're a KYC exchange, should you convert to something different before transferring to your own custodial wallet? No. No. So what is a custodial wallet? First of all, a custodial wallet is a wallet you hold. It could be a hardware wallet like, uh... Like a Trezor or or a, a Nano uh, or what have you. We'll say a little bit more about um, hardware wallets a little bit later. Uh, or it could be a software wallet like Jaxx or Exodus or something like that. If you tram- like let's say you bought Bitcoin because you wanted Bitcoin on Coinbase, which is a KYC exchange, right? And then you wanted to hold Bitcoin. And then you, trans, you 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 turned it into, you know, this was like, should I turn it into USDC Tether or something? You changed it into that, and you sent it to yourself. First of all, since Tether's on the Ethereum chain right now, you're going to really pay fees higher than you will moving Bitcoin off of Coinbase. Um, but that aside, now you have in your wallet Tether, and you wanted Bitcoin. So now you have to KYC inside the exchange function inside your wallet, assuming there is one, to flip it back over that doesn't really make sense however it might be a way to save on fees if you've KYC'd in your wallet anyway if you have a, um, a conversion option in your wallet it might make sense then to convert to something like Litecoin which has very low fees, do the transfer and then convert over but if you've done the KYC with your wallet provider because you're using one that has exchange functions in it then just buy it there Because it's still kyc to you anyway at that point. So, no, don't do that. I'm really not sure what the goal of that question was, but no, don't do that. Number two, the third question is is a good answer to the second question, by the way. Uh, Why are you so against holding on exchanges using DeFi, etc.? Okay, because your money is now in somebody else's custody. And the whole point of cryptocurrency is that you custody your own money. And I have a question on the main uses for cryptocurrency in the world, and that's one of the big ones. So if you buy cryptocurrency on Coinbase, and you hold your money on Coinbase, and maybe it's even one of the cryptos on Coinbase, where you can earn interest on your money, and you're like, why wouldn't I do that? Okay, because you, our KYC is you. First name, last name, social security number, bank account, everything on Coinbase, that you own this cryptocurrency, And if the government decides you owe them money, right, they can go in and basically subpoena Coinbase to lock your accounts. That's just one thing that could happen. Um, I think the odds that Coinbase as an exchange is going to get hacked and you'll lose money off of it are exceedingly low. You're more likely to be eaten by Godzilla than that happening. But the odds that you could run afoul of the U.S. government who could seize your accounts, uh, subpoena your accounts, etc., that's a reasonable risk. That's probably a higher risk than um, somebody assaulting you and needing to use a gun to defend yourself, and most of you carry a gun to defend yourself. right? And I think the risk is higher that that would go on there. And there's other exchanges that I wouldn't say I feel is secure holding my money on just from hacks alone. As far as DeFi and all and making interest and in whatever, like if you want to do that, I think you should take a... Portion of your crypto holdings and say this is money that's more in the risk pool, that most of your money should be self-custodied in some way. Because, well, we'll save it for another one of the questions that I think toward the end will make a lot of sense to where why self-custody is the way, right? You know, from uh, Mandalorian, this is the way, self-custody, this is the way. Um, number three, what do you think about the recent cross-chain hack on the Poly Network? Well, I never heard of the Poly Network, and if I'm going to put my money into a network, I'm going to put my network my money into a network I've at least heard of. Uh, the Poly Network was a DeFi-type network that allowed for cross-chain exchanges for the purpose of DeFi. And I want to point out that no Bitcoin was stolen in this. Uh, rather, Ethereum and uh, Tether and some other things, now which are all kind of flagged, So like the person that stole it can't really move it or exchange it because now they're all black flagged, at least the tether is. This is why I don't stay keep my money on these networks and exchanges and things like this because no one has ever successfully hacked Bitcoin or Litecoin or Ethereum, but I can fill up pages and pages and pages of shit like this happening with Ethereum smart contracts being executed poorly, uh, and this was a coding cryptography area error, error within the network itself. Like, no, this is why I this is why I self custody. I don't think it's worth six percent or three percent or four percent interest on these networks at this time to make my money public, subject to asset forfeiture and subject to hacking. I'll, I will self-custody thank you. That, that's, that's what I think of the Poly Network hack. There's a link to that story in the video notes today. Uh, four, what is um, an airdrop, and is it worth bothering with? So there's airdrops are generally different than faucets. Faucets are generally ways to promote a crypto where you can get a tiny little bit of crypto by asking for it. A lot of Discord servers do this. There's an R uh, faucet on the, um, on the R Discord server, for instance, where you can get a little bit of R every day. Um, an airdrop is different. It's usually connected to another crypto, like from a fork. Like the most famous one of all time would have been the Bitcoin Cash hard fork. If you were holding Bitcoin in any wallet or exchange that supported the fork... When the fork happened, if you had four Bitcoin, all of a sudden you had four Bitcoin cash. Yay you, right? Um, there are websites that you can look up uh, about. Just put Crypto Faucet into Google or whatever, and you'll find sites that announce these types of airdrops. Some airdrops are done in, co- and in cooperation with exchanges, and basically anybody with an account will get some crypto or sometimes they'll say if you have over X balance you'll get some of this new crypto I want to point out that these things are not necessarily bad I ended up getting a buttload of Stellar Lumens on Coinbase I forgot all about it one day I'm like oh they're in there and I sold them and converted it to Bitcoin and made a few bucks on it Right? they're not all bad but most of these, these airdrops at this point in time are total shit coins Now, if you want to get some shit coins and if they kind of go up, you dump them, fine, you can do that, you can play that game. But it's usually going to involve you now moving some of your crypto onto an exchange between a certain group of dates, not always, but usually, so that you can get this airdrop. And let me tell you the game these ass clowns are playing so you understand why they're doing this. They're not doing this because they like you. What these these companies are generally attempting to do is they're trying to, but what they're doing, they're trying to get themselves listed into, like, a top 100 project. Because when you really kind of take off as a crypto is when somebody goes to CoinGecko or, you know, any of these, these tracking sites, and they look, they look at, like, the top 100. So they're trying to play the market cap game. So what they're trying to do is get to where their market cap, which is the price per coin times the total number of coins in circulation. That's your market cap. So if you make a gazillion tokens and they're valued at $0.02 apiece and you give away half a gazillion tokens, all of a sudden you have a great big market cap even if nobody's trading you. And that's what's going on there. So I'm not not real big on these airdrops when they're announced – and their forks it might make sense to move if you own already the corresponding currency sometimes there's ones where there's certain things you can do you know i've i've gotten some stuff like this like i said it's worked out okay it's not really a great reason for me to take my my self-custodied crypto in general and put it into a place where it's not self-custody and a lot of the things, like for instance, the Bitcoin Cash hard fork, if it's something like that, you don't have to necessarily put it somewhere to let it happen. There's ways that you can claim your Bitcoin Cash. Uh, the other one that I got, you know, matching on was the Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, and there was another Bitcoin. And some of you may find if you were holding Bitcoin, like during the BSV split and things like that, you have unclaimed crypto, and you may want to look into how to do that. Um, I didn't even think about the Satoshi Vision thing. And what it turned out was, I think that came out of Bitcoin Cash. I moved some Bitcoin Cash onto an exchange. And when I moved it, uh, it was actually CoinEx. And when I moved it onto the exchange, all of a sudden, an equivalent amount of Bitcoin Satoshi Vision showed up. So I sent all my Bitcoin Cash, and like 80% of it cloned itself as Satoshi Vision and one other one. And then I just immediately sent it back to myself and then sold off the BSV and the other thing, Uh, So you might want to look into that. Sometimes it is that simple. Uh, Next up, how how do atomic swaps work and how do privacy coins factor into atomic swaps? Atomic swaps are where I send you a cryptocurrency, let's say Litecoin, and you don't want Litecoin, you want Bitcoin Cash, so you get Bitcoin Cash. Explaining the technology on the back end and there's different ways that it's done is too complex for this video. But that's the basis of what it is. Person A wants, you know, I'll tell you an example of an atomic swap that happens in real time on an existing app. If you use the Strike app that we'll talk about a little bit, and you are spending Satoshis, i.e., Bitcoin, but the vendor who's also using the Strike app doesn't want Bitcoin, they want dollars. They won't get, you know, US dollars as in what's in your bank account, they'll get tethered. Which, for all intents and purposes, is a U.S. dollar. It spends like a dollar. It's stable like a dollar. You can convert it to dollars, move it to your bank account, whatever. So just by setting up, I want to receive dollars, this person wants to spend Bitcoin using the Lightning Network with Strike, you get dollars. That's an atomic swap. Where privacy coins fit into this is, let's say I wanted to spend uh, Bitcoin. You wanted Bitcoin Cash... But we wanted a private transaction. Well, you'd be able to see my send of a Bitcoin, but it would go into that atomic swap, get converted into something like Monero or R, then back end convert over to the Bitcoin Cash you want, and then deposit to you. So the Bitcoin Cash transaction would be visible on the Bitcoin Cash blockchain. Just that it was like Bitcoin Cash appears as if from nowhere over here and Bitcoin disintegrates as if from nowhere over here, and then the connection between the two is invisible. That's how it works with a privacy coin. Uh, this person was asking specifically as it relates to R. I do not believe R has atomic swaps yet, but I believe uh, the blockchain privacy uh, group is working on that. I do believe that Monero does support atomic swaps at this time. Uh, next up, how do you withdraw from polarity? Um, You just do. The person said, what is the most secure and safest way to withdraw from polarity? Well, there's only one way to withdraw from polarity, which is a decentralized exchange, and that is to withdraw from polarity. But I'm going to tell you, I think I know exactly what's happening to this person. When you go into your polarity account, and if you were going to hold crypto on an exchange long term, I would use polarity. Because with Polarity, you basically have a software cloud wallet is the best way I can describe it, though it's not exactly accurate. You hold your own keys, and you have a double layer of security, meaning the first thing you have to do is log into your Polarity account. That requires a username, a password, and authentication with third-party authenticator. Then you have to open your wallet, and when you open your wallet so you can do exchanges and what have you, you have to enter another level of password. And so it is very secure, and you hold your keys, and Polarity doesn't have your keys. And if the government went to the owners of Polarity, like Tony Nguyen, who's been on my show, put a gun to his head and said, we will blow your brains out if you don't give us Jack Spirico's uh, seed phrase, he'd say, I'm, I don't, please don't shoot me, but I can't. I don't have it. So I, I like them for security. But what what happens, and I've done this myself, even after I already knew better, because it's just not very intuitive – You go to your account, and you look up your R or your Bitcoin or whatever, and you click Transfer. And then you can't get it to work. Because what Transfer means is to send it to another Polarity account. You need to select Withdraw to actually pull it off the exchange into your own custody into some other form of a wallet and it's up in the right-hand corner of the account, and you click in it, and you select Withdraw, and then you select the currency, where if you select the currency in your wallet and select Transfer, it assumes you're trying to send it to someone else who's on Polarity, maybe a second account that you hold, maybe you and I both use Polarity, and we're using it as our wallets, and we're doing wallet-to-wallet transfer on the network. So that's that's that issue. I highly recommend if you use the Polarity DEX Exchange... And it's in the video notes. You join the Polarity Telegram group. Um, there's a ton of support there from users, from staff, and even from owners. And if you ask a question in that group that's not a retarded question, you will get an answer that is easy to understand and all the support you need, and you'll get that very, very quickly. Next up, is it a good idea to use Strike. Um, this was a person who said, I like the idea of selling some eggs for 6,000 Satoshis or whatever. Actually, it would be pretty cheap eggs, but I get what you're saying there. Okay, here's how I feel about Strike. For the people of El Salvador, it is God's, God's manna and crypto being delivered down onto them. Because the, the government of El Salvador has seen fit to recognize Bitcoin as legal tender. If I receive $5 worth of Bitcoin today and Bitcoin has a really good week, and it's worth $8 at the end of the week, and I spend it for $8 worth of shit at the end of the week, I owe no additional taxes. In the United States, we treat crypto as a asset. So if I get $5 worth of cryptocurrency on Monday, and I spend it at a value of $8 on Friday, I owe tax on $3, plus I owe tax on the $5 I originally received as income against the expenses that generated that. The problem for U.S. residents with STRIKE is it is KYC. And it's not KYC because Jack Mahler serves the New World Order. It's KYC because Jack Maulers doesn't want to go to federal prison. And I don't blame him. So if you're going to use STRIKE as an American citizen, they are going to KYC you. This in of itself is not horrible. It just is. And we need to be clear about what that means. So I would use STRIKE is a vendor of small dollar items to allow people to pay me in Bitcoin who can onboard in minutes. And yes, it is the way to go selling small dollar items. You're selling shit under 50 bucks. Um, using Lightning works great. It has almost no fees whatsoever. It's like a penny or something. Uh, it's way cheaper than PayPal. It's just onboard money. And what I mean by that is it's a, above board money, right? Like it is it is publicly known. Now, The Lightning Network has its own privacy features because of how it works. Um, And let me see if there is a question on that. Yes, I'm going to talk about that later, so I'll I'll put that on on the shelf for right now. But I would just say if your intention is all of the cryptocurrency that I take in with the Strike app, I'm allowing people to pay me with it, I am going to then move into my own wallet and I'm going to hold it long term. No reason not to. It's no different. Think of it like you went to Coinbase and you bought cryptocurrency for cash. It's it that that token is or that coin is known to now be associated with you. That doesn't mean everybody knows it, but it means it could be figured out and now that's public crypto. Think of it that way. No problem, but that's what it is. However, it would be Difficult in some ways to sort out because of how lightning works, but once it goes through the strike funnel, it changes that. So we'll save that for later. Um, I just want to say, I think this is the number one reason people don't spend cryptocurrency in the United States. Actually, there's two, and they're almost equal. Number one is we don't earn in it, we don't earn cryptocurrency. Uh, those of us that sell stuff and sell for cryptocurrency, most of us sell the minority of what we sell for crypto and the majority of what we sell for dollars, euros, etc., depending on pounds, wherever we live, right? So that means we don't have to spend it, and we don't want to spend it because we use it as a wealth preservation and a and, and long-term asset investing uh, strategy. But the other reason is because when we do spend it, it incurs a tax. So unless we want to spend it at a loss or break even and time that perfectly... We're kind of in a situation, by spending it, I've also now divested myself of my crypto, and now I've created a tax consequence. In small dollar amounts here and there, no one's going to know. I mean, really, no one's going to track this down. But in large dollar amounts, you start paying your electric bill, you start buying cars, you start paying your rent, uh, etc. Then then those kind of numbers add up, and they end up going through certain funnels that report to the government, and you end up with issues. So this is what holds back spending in the United States. So you basically have your pure anarcho, uh, crypto anarchists that that you know we're spending money here and there and doing whatever we want in the hell of the government, and then you have you kind of your pristine above board AMA you know or AML whatever it is you know anti money laundering shit that's, that's above board. That's just like an asset we hold, right? And we'll figure out how we're going to handle the tax issues with that. Um, later right all right so next up is what happens when bitcoin starts really being spent as new wealth so this is an astute question because this is the truth like you hear the term new money new money are people that were born without money but all of a sudden they have money right like those kind of people tend to like really start spending the benjamins And there is a lot of people investing in Bitcoin or that have invested in Bitcoin that have had a lot of savers discipline and haven't spent it. But at some point, people that, you know, end up being worth several million dollars go out and buy some stuff. I think this is a lot like the question of what happens when the baby boomers retire, which has now pretty much happened, right? Like, that was the big basketball of money that when they retire and they start buying a house in Arizona and going on vacations and all, what does that look like? It looks like a lot of spending. Um, With Bitcoin, I, I don't know that it'll have that much of a dramatic impact just from a spending standpoint. Like, anything being spent is being received. So if you have like the Bitcoiners, the Bitcoin ballers, eventually start buying yachts and stuff like that, they're probably going to be trading Bitcoin for it. And so I don't think it'll have a dramatic impact on the global economy just from a spending standpoint. I think the impact of Bitcoin as a reserve currency will have a much broader impact than just the spending. Um, But I could be wrong. I really don't know about that. Uh, Are we at the beginning, middle, or end of the current bull market? Okay, pure speculation, I don't know um, if I can answer questions like this and know what I'm talking about and be 100% accurate. I would be so rich I wouldn't be talking to you anymore because every time uh, we were at the beginning or the end, I would know to go all in and come all out, and I would just have so much money that I would roll around in bitcoins on the floor. I would have physical bitcoins made just so I could roll in them if I could actually tell you the answer to that. Speculating as someone that's been in the market a long time and listens to really smart people with good but not perfect track records like Willy Woo, I think we will finish 2021 incredibly strong. I think we have real potential to see Bitcoin at about $100,000 by the end of 2021. I'm not promising you that and I certainly wouldn't cry about it if it was 75,000. I'd be pretty happy. We get back up to like the $64,000 top by the end of the year, I'll be pretty happy. But I think we're heading for that $100,000 range. I think the earlier like ridiculous optimism of the spring when people were talking about 300 grand by the end of the year, I think that's off the table and I think reality has set in. I do think your next really, really hard ceiling to crack is $100,000. I think if Bitcoin goes to 65, it's going to 85. Like that's, that's where I think we go from here through the rest of the year and even into the, the, the winter of 2022. However, I think as you get toward that $100,000 ceiling, you get into a place where there's a lot of people are sitting out there. They have 20, 30 bitcoins. They're what you would call fish. Instead of whales, right? They're they're they're, they're a cod or a, you know something like that, uh, a nice big giant fish that swims around the ocean. Not that many things eat you, but the sharks. And um, that person, I can fully understand when they're like, "Well, I have thirty bitcoins. I could sell ten bitcoins. I have a million dollars cash." That's a hell of a lifetime goal achieved. I'm now a liquid millionaire and I still have 20 Bitcoins. And I think you might see a lot of psychologically driven selling around that mark. Um, do I still recommend Jax and what are other options? Uh, yes and no. I think Jax is a fine wallet. I think it works just fine. Uh, they're talking about having a rewards program eventually. That would be nice. Get off your ass and do it, Jax. And if you download any wallet, Go to the freaking website of the Wallet Maker and be sure you're there with Jaxx. It's Jaxx, dot I-O. Even if you're on your mobile device and you're going to use it from the App Store, there have been some fake-ass wallets planted in some of the App Stores. Go to the site, click the thing to open the app from the main website, download the app. If I was getting a light Software Multi-Currency Wallet today... Knowing what I know now, starting from zero, I would use the other wallet that I use in addition to Jack's, Exodus. Exodus has support for more cryptos, it has support for some proof of stake cryptos, and it supports Monero. Not R yet, but it does support Monero. It also has a great user interface. And if you are actually running a business using crypto, every transaction can have notes. It keeps everything nicely organized for your accounting and all of that. And I just think it's a nicer overall interface and a better wallet. Again, it's called Exodus. I have links to both Jax and Exodus in the video notes for you. But if if I were starting today from zero... I wouldn't quit using Jax if I was using Jax necessarily, but I might pick up the Exodus wallet, start playing with it, put some crypto in it, and I think you'll find it to be an overall smoother, nicer interface with more support for more assets. All right. Um, Is there, um, how do you start accepting cryptocurrency? Well, you start by saying, I accept cryptocurrency. If you have a website, put on your website, I accept cryptocurrency. I think the the simplest way for the most people is get a wallet um, and pick crypto you're willing to accept. And say, I accept these cryptocurrencies. And you can do what I do to get started. Like, I only sell one thing on my site. It's a membership. So I don't get that many crypto orders a couple a week. So I do it completely privately. I don't use any plugins. I don't use anything. I want to pay in crypto. You click a thing, you fill out a form, says what you want. I get it. I say it's going to cost this much. Send me crypto to this address. You know which crypto do you want to pay with? When somebody says they want to pay with like Screw Coin or something, some arbitrary weird shit, um, I'll go. I have like two primary exchange accounts that I use. I'll go see if it's listed on that exchange. Because if I don't want it, I really don't want it. I don't want to hold it just because you want to pay in it. And if it's on one of those two main exchanges, it's easy for me to swap it to something else. I give them that address. If it's like Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash or Ethereum or something I hold, I give them an address that's in my wallet, and they send it, and then I manually set their account up. If you were selling a physical widget, you could then go ahead and manually process that order. You can also use. There's a ton of different plugins. I'm sure somebody here knows the plugin that the Pirate Chain guys recommend that does like nine million cryptocurrencies um, for WordPress. If you're using a, sh- a um, like a shopping cart driven site, I would go ahead and get set up with one of the plugins for that. And you just basically say uh, this is this is a Bitcoin address. This is my Bitcoin Cash address, etc. I do recommend this though. If you're doing that at least once a week, once a month, whenever you get a couple orders or something like that, generate a new address, same wallet, new address, and change it in the back end of the plugin. You do not want to receive all your Bitcoin to the same address and create this register of all the transactions to that one address. Pretty much, I do one transaction, generate a new address. One transaction, generate a new address. There's some ways to automate that, but... The reason you don't want to do that, right? It's not just about government and IRS and all that shit. Let's say that you use the same Bitcoin address or Bitcoin cash address or whatever, and you sell quite a bit of stuff over time on your website. Bill decides to buy some shit from you. Maybe Bill's a bad guy. Bill pays you your 25 bucks or whatever. Bill knows the Bitcoin address that you gave him. He has to. Bill checks the block explorer to see, hey... Did my transaction go through? Bill sees on the block explorer that address. Bill says, "Gee, I wonder how much money, you, you know, look, James has in his Bitcoin address." If you're smart, when he clicks it, it says twenty-five dollars—the stuff he just sent you. If you've been doing it for years to the same address, maybe it says something like eighty-five thousand dollars in Bitcoin on this one address. Really? Hmm. Where does Bill live? Next thing you know, Bill's laying in his bed in the middle of the night with a gun in his mouth being asked to transfer his Bitcoin. That's one reason, and a good one, you don't want to use the same address over and over and over again. Just saying. Because once that address is associated with you, anybody can see every transaction that ever went in and out of it. By having lots of addresses with little amounts of money, that is much more complicated. Um, Somebody said to me, is it actually more private to use the Lightning Network? Because I've said that in the sides. If so, how? Okay, here's how. When you use the Lightning Network, you have multiple nodes on that network, and your transaction bounces between those nodes, takes the quickest path, cheapest path possible, and ends up to the other party. If Bill is a node on the network and you send Bill a transaction, Bill can see who sent the transaction, where it came from, and where it's going. Bill doesn't know if you're the original sender, if you're the 15th node in the chain. Bill has no idea. He just knows it came from this node and it's going to that node because he must receive it so he has to know where it came from and he has to transact, the, move the transaction along so he has to know where it's going. Okay? Well, that transaction is wrapped with what's called onion routing. And there's basically a bunch of fake information in there, plus all the information necessary to complete the whole transaction. So the two parties on either side really aren't known within the network. And when you're talking about buying scones and coffees and like the stuff that, like, I would not do a transaction for $100,000 on a Lightning network, I would do that node to node. Right? Like the Lightning Network is for small transactions. It's the kind of shit that the government really can't spend a lot of time jacking around with unless it's a merchant receiving thousands of them. But these individual transactions are the minutiae level that can't really be messed with, and it takes a lot of effort and work to even unmask the nodes. So we can get in there, we can put put some skin in the game, deposit our own Satoshis, and there are certain things that can be done to kind of figure out who, you know, at least the balance is on some of the other nodes, if not who owns them. But the nodes themselves have no idea that it's Bill and Sue actually transacting, and there's no real way to know that. Now, again, the money comes out into a wallet, the wallet is in a public ledger. If the address becomes associated with you, then they know everything. But it is, it is far more privacy than an open Bitcoin transaction yes um, what hardware wallet do you recommend and why um, I personally use a ledger nano s and that's because it supports more assets uh, than the, uh, the than the, uh, the I'm sorry the, the ledger nano X right uh, one does like 22. You can keep 22 different currencies on there. Supports a bunch more than that, but you keep like 22 on it, and one supports eight. You can keep eight assets. So they're like 100, like 50 bucks for the S, and the X is like 100 dollars, I think. Uh, They're both fine. If I was getting one today, brand new, I would look hard at the Trezor, uh, the Trezor One or the Trezor Model T, which also has a way to keep your mnemonic device on a separate. tool that they give you. I think they call it a build folder or something like that. Both companies are fine. And there's some other ones I just don't know for a fact that the other ones you know, I don't know anything about them. I've never used them. So I would be comfortable using a Ledger or a Tracer. I will say this though. If you have like $300 worth crypto use freaking Exodus wallet. Don't go spend $150 or $200 on a wallet to hold two or $300 worth of crypto. Just don't do it. It's just not like accumulate a couple thousand. I, I'm fine holding a few thousand dollars on a light wallet. I really am. Uh, Exodus, Jax, etc. And like I said, I would say that of the exchanges that I've worked with, Polarity is about as secure as any software wallet anyway. Right. I'm not saying you should definitely keep your money. I'm just saying I would be more comfortable doing that than, than a lot of other things. If you want a hardware wallet for our pirate chain, there isn't one yet. doesn't exist. None of them support it yet, so I don't have an answer for that. Uh, next up, what are the main uses of crypto in the real world? Well, where do you live in the real world? If you live in El Salvador, it is a defense against the degrade, the the, uh, the inflation inflicted upon you on the U.S. dollar, which is your country's official currency, uh, when you don't partake in any of the money printing. So if you're sitting in El Salvador, you can now use Bitcoin as legal tender. There's no tax consequences other than the basic income from receiving it, You know whether it's a paycheck or you sold something or whatever. Um, and then you can spend it, and then you're, you're basically not subject to a foreign government's manipulation of your currency. For the rest of us that live in this world... I think the number one answer people will give to this is wrong. It's an inflation hedge, and I think an inflation hedge is incredibly subjective. Um, is incredibly subjective to time. So if you're holding Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation, and you need that money in the next six months, that's a bad that's a bad decision, as far as I'm concerned, because. It's incredibly volatile, and even though I just said I think Bitcoin's still got a lot of legs left on the run up before we actually see a true top to this cycle, that doesn't mean I'm right. It also doesn't mean that's a straight path. So maybe, yes, we're going to have $100,000 or $110,000 Bitcoin by January 2022. Maybe, let's say I'm right when I say that, okay? That doesn't mean we can't have $32,000 Bitcoin in mid-September and you just happen to need your freaking money in mid-September. So I see more as long-term asset value protection, is how I would phrase it. Is that an inflation hedge? It is, but it's an inflation hedge across a much broader timeline. And it's money that's in that third bucket that I always talk about. The bucket one, money we're going to spend in the next month to two months. It's it's our cash flow money. Bucket number two, mid-term savings. Bucket number three, long-term Held investments that's where the majority of my crypto fits in bucket number three and so we have that but we also have portable non-seizable wealth I've talked about this this is the this is what sold me on Bitcoin in 2014 this is where I went I get it the 21 million mattered and I'm like I get it but you can make like I wasn't Is well versed yet? And I'm like, but somebody can make another crypto. Like, even though you can't make more Bitcoin, you can make, you know, diddly do coin and daddly-da coin and dogecoin and all stupid shit. And I didn't get how how dominant Bitcoin really would be. But as I started to get it, what I really understood was, oh, so I can have a million dollars. And it can all be in something like a Jack's wallet. I don't think that's a good long-term strategy, but it could be. And then there's this phrase of all these words that I can memorize or I can stamp into my ass and somehow encrypt it and only I know how to like actually figure out what the right order of the phrase is. And then I can like go to Japan and then I can download an app and then I can enter these words and there's my money and the government and any other entity on the planet can't do Jack Diddley's square root of F all about it. That's the use of Bitcoin and crypto as a whole. It is wealth that is infinitely portable. It's wealth with no weight. You want to move a million dollars worth of gold to Japan, it's an ordeal, and there's a lot of opportunity for it to be seized. You want to move a million dollars worth of Bitcoin to Japan... You don't even need to actually move it. All you need is access to it. You have 24-7 and 365 access to your wealth. And if you are not stupid, no one else does. If there is any reason to be invested in something like Bitcoin, that is why. Um, we had a member of our community, for instance, I want to finish up here, but really, really important to understand this. We had a member of our community, got sideways with the... Um, the tax collecting service, the basically the, the, the Massachusetts version of the IRS, the state tax collection agency in Massachusetts, whatever they are, the Masshole Tax Company, right? And they seized his bank account, and he was in deep shit of not being able to pay for certain things he needed to keep his business running. If we sent him cash to his bank account, it was locked up and seized, and he was fighting with them at this time. So a bunch of us got together, like, we'll loan you a couple thousand bucks, And we didn't want the money back. It was like, we'll loan it to you. You put it in a fund. And the next time we have somebody in the community that needs it, you pass it on, right? And so we sent him Bitcoin. And you know what the Massachusetts Tax Collection Authority could do about it? Nothing. That's an example of the use of Bitcoin in the real world right there. Portable money they can't touch. And so I talked about yesterday with the uh, the yachts. Right? Like, so like they taxed the yachts and all the yachts sailed away. Went to a new port. You can't do that with US dollars. You can't really do that very effectively with precious metals because there's weight and a security issue. But with cryptocurrency, it's just knowledge of numbers. And you can't stop knowledge. Um, I want you to think about one term here at the end of this. Information deflation. That's what the Internet's brought you, information deflation. In other words, information is just as valuable as it always was, but it costs less. Think about that. Information can do just as much for you now as it could ever do for you, but access to information costs less than any time in history. What cryptocurrency is, by decentralizing economics by decentralizing the primary economic good, which is Bitcoin at this point, what you're able to do is move it for pennies anywhere in the world and secure it for almost no cost. That's the use of Bitcoin in the real world. And with that, we will wrap up. I'll be back tomorrow. And I promise, since we went long again, um, we will not have a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or anything episode tomorrow. But I needed to do this one. Thanks, guys. Well, hey folks, welcome to Miyagi Morning's episode, what the hell is it, I think it's 151 today, yeah, 151, and uh, it's a good number for rum, but today we're going to talk about something that, well, I, I guess I guess anarchists and rum kind of go together. Um, there's There was a lot of rum running uh, among the pirates of the day and among our founders, uh, running rum and wine, both, uh, into the colonies prior to the... Uh, the revolution, and, and those guys were as anarchist as it gets at that time. Anyway, um, for those just tuning in now, I, I do want to point out we had a poll today, and you can always like get more input on Miyagi Mornings and the show in general and the TSP community in general if you follow me on social media. This one went up on MeWe. It went on MeWe because MeWe has polls in, Float does not. Listening to Aaron and Kingsley, yeah, you don't have polls. Anyway, um, so today we're going to talk about being an anarchist in a world where we will never, ever, in our lifetimes anyway, be the majority. When I talk about anarchy, I often say that you have to have seventh-generational thinking, and... I'm going to be honest, it's a really nice way of saying that basically if we ever live in a world once again, because there was a time when the world was dominated by anarchistic thinking, but if we ever live in that world again, um, if it's ever permitted to flourish, you won't see it. You have to think of, and I I wrote it out to figure out what seven generations would be for great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. It's a really nice way of saying you'll die without seeing this. So then you got to ask, well, what's the point? Should we bother? Is it it even matter that we identify ourselves as anarchists? And I'm going to say that, you know, I think that the entire idea that we say, I am an anarchist, or I am a conservative, or I am a liberal, or I am a Nazi, or whatever the hell you come up with to identify with, most of it comes from... A component of the human psyche, which actually is part of what makes us really amazing creatures in that we need to categorize and label things. And that is a huge component of what makes up real science. The fact that I can, you know, look at the tank, uh, the fish tank that's just on the other side of the camera from you guys, and I can look in there and there's 20 different plants. And I can identify them, and I know what they do and their characteristics. There's, you know, a dozen different species of fish. There's crustaceans. Like that is part of the taxonomic nature of science, and so identifying things is important. But maybe self-identity is one of those things that we we, we feel that we need an ism or an ist to go with who we are, whether we're survivalists or you know, uh, minarchists or anarchists or statists. Like we need some way to self-identify. I don't think it's necessarily bad, but I think when it comes into the world of anarchy, maybe it's a little overused or maybe just like we put a little bit too much importance on that identification for ourselves. And I think it's really because, and you guys let me know in the chat, but I think for most people that become anarchists at some point in their life, they don't sit down and say, okay, which what side do I want to join? Which is why I consider it an apolitical ideology. They don't sit down and go, what 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 what, what do I want to work towards? How do I want to participate in the political system? How do I want to, what what things do I want to force upon others? It's like completely the opposite of that. I think you come to anarchy is a system of belief, not a political ideology. So if, if people ask me, well, what's the point of being an anarchist if you don't think your side will, you know, quote-unquote, win uh, it, during your lifetime? That's like asking a Christian, why do you believe in Jesus? They've made a, a, a decision based on faith and morality to be a Christian, or to be a Jew, or to be a Buddhist. In a, in a lot of ways, being an anarchist is not a religion, but it's more like a faith than it is like a political ideology. It all comes from the concept of, I don't think it's ever okay, ever, under any circumstances, for any person to, to take stuff from another person or harm another person who's being peaceful. I don't think that's okay. And I will never think that's Okay. And I don't think because a bunch of people got together and put their hand up and said, we vote for Bill to be able to take people's stuff, or we vote for Tom to be able to be mean to people, that it makes it okay. It's always wrong, the end. So the decision to be an anarchist, to me, and I'm interested in what many of you guys feel about it for yourselves, if you categorize yourself uh, as an anarchist. Do you think it's something you decided to be, or do you think it's something that you realized that you are? And that's what you really always were. And so then, to not live that way, to not accept that about yourself, it, to mean that then we can just throw away who wins. It's to live in denial of the reality of who and what you are. So I start from that point, that this is a moral decision based on my belief about how I am required to treat other people. It doesn't really affect how other people are required to treat me. It does give me guidance as to what what I can do to defend myself and where the line is. But it's not because I think that you know one day everybody will hold up a big circled A and then we will win a convention somewhere and we'll take over the whole government and then disband it. That, that is not why I'm an anarchist. I'm an anarchist because I believe it is wrong for me to steal from you and I believe that it's wrong for me to take your property and I think it's wrong for me to hurt you and I think the only time that I can morally break those three things is if you're trying to harm me or you're trying to harm somebody else in an instance where they're not aggressing on you. Done. Next, it's really important that we understand being right does not mean we will win, especially when you play the game poorly. So recently, I did a, a, a Miyagi Mornings that was about you know, sovereign citizenship and uh, trying to stand under that legally and all. And I said, this is stupid, and it's a good way to end up in prison. And it doesn't work, and it, it doesn't mean what you think it does. And you can't go into a courtroom and say magical words and basically tell the judge, my magic is stronger than your magic, which is how a lot of people present that. I think a lot of people took that to mean that I didn't believe in the sovereign rights of the individual, which that's when you're tuning out what's being said because you don't like something else the person said. I absolutely agree with the principle, but it's not an effective strategy in dealing with the state. And it's the same thing as if you wanted to go from point A to point B, and the most expedient way to get there is a dark alley that is controlled by gang members, that it is known that if you walk through there, you will be assaulted and shaken down for any of your possessions at best and murdered at worst. And you say, but I should be able to go anywhere I want. So you walk through that dark alley alone and unarmed. That's stupid things in stupid places and with stupid people even if it's just you because you're being stupid. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means you're going to lose. So in that case, we either need to be heavily armed and surrounded with other people or we need to take another route. And this is how we have to approach dealing with the state's systems, okay? And if we don't, we get shivved, metaphorically speaking, right? Because, you know, we're going to deny the state the right to take our property tax. They're going to come take our property, and we're going to lose that fight. At this stage of the game, that is not the way to play the game. Um, it, it really isn't, and I think that if you if you don't get that, you won't be able to design your life in a way as an anarchist or even as a an minarchist libertarian that's going to keep you in the seat where you get to win more than you lose. Next, we do not need to solve the problems the state has not solved in thousands of years to justify our belief. Every time I talk about this subject, I get, well, how are you going to fix this? How are you going to fix that? And my response is, okay, we've had the state in its modern form throughout a lot of the world For at least, at least 5,000 years. And the more we learn about ancient history and fallen civilizations, the more it looks like it's maybe tens of thousands of years with periods of anarchy in between. And in all those thousands of years, your state system has not fixed that problem. I do not need to provide a two-sentence answer to how to fix that problem to justify my belief. I do not need to solve a problem that you have failed to solve. And in most instances, the state has actually made the problem worse. I don't need to be able to perfectly articulate in two sentences how to fix that to justify my belief that you stealing from others to fail to fix it is wrong. And we need to stand morally on that alone. That is enough. We don't need, like, there's all types of potential solutions in a private sector economy to every problem that there is, but none of them are perfect. None of them will ever be perfect. No anarchist promises perfection. Anarchists accept there will never be perfection. But we do know, if you take away choice in how we choose to solve our problems, we'll get worse solutions, not better. If I have one place to to obtain my security from, I'm going to get bad security. If I have one place to obtain the education of my child form, I'm going to get a poor education for my child relative to what I could have if I had a choice. It's that simple. And so we need to create choices within a system that's designed to be in monopoly. However that plays out, using whatever tools and leverage points and weaknesses of the enemy that we can. Next, you need to think about the often quoted... And, and used to defend status ideology Bible verse, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and you need to think about it differently. The first thing you have to do is you have to take that quote, and you have to understand it in its context that it was used in the Bible. And I'm not a religious person, but if we're going to go there, I have a pretty good mastery of the subject matter. Um, in the, in, in the, the stanzas or the, the, the verses preceding that statement, it's very clear That what was going on is leaders in the faith were trying to trick him. That's the exact words. They tried to trick him. They tried to trick Jesus into saying, don't pay your taxes, because they wanted him dead. And they knew if they went to the the Roman governor Pilate and said, he said not to pay your taxes, and he had shitloads of people following him around, they'd kill him. So you've got to start with that context. But even in the statement itself... Text is the lowest form of communications. It doesn't have nuances. And so we always think of of Jesus in the Bible of speaking with authority and kind of this like commanding thing. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. Just see Jesus rolling his eyes and saying, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And render unto God that which is God's. Hmm. Interesting in the context of trying to be tricked. What Jesus was saying is when you play their game in their world, you have to play by their rules. And when you play God's game in God's world, you play by God's rules. And a lot of anarchists are like maybe turned off by that because you're inherently not religious. I'm not either. doesn't mean we can't learn from philosophy that has lasted thousands of years. And when I say render unto God that which is God's, I mean in, in the natural world, obey natural order and in their artificial world where you choose to interact with it, you need to learn to play the game by their rules better than they do. We'll talk more about that in a second. One of the ways we can do that, though, is we need to always use private contracts when the situation allows for it. If you do anything with anybody that involves both of you making commitments to each other, and then there would be some sort of recourse if that commitment failed, you absolutely should have a contract, and that contract should absolutely require private arbitration if it is in dispute, period. And I always write my contracts non-binding private arbitration first, binding private arbitration second, and, and then it ends. Because if I have, then again, if you force me into the state system and I have to go get the state's apparatus to enforce the private arbiter's decision, I'll do it. Years of business, decades of business, never had to go past non-binding arbitration. Not once. Not one time. As soon as you get a non-binding arbitrator in who doesn't have an incentive to side with one side or the other or to suck money from you, people become very reasonable with each other very quickly. It doesn't always work, but it's always worked for me. Always use private contracts and a little, little stipulation of common law here. It is always in your benefit to be the party that does not draft the contract. This is kind of outside the anarchist world, but it is knowing how to play their game. And the reason you never want to be the party that drafts the contract if you don't have to be is there's a principle in common law, and that is that any ambiguity in a contract benefits the party that didn't draft the contract. And honestly, in the status world, we need to start applying that to the Constitution. The contract that is the Constitution, is a contract between the states and the people. The federal government is not even a party to that contract because it didn't exist when the contract was signed. The contract was made between the people of the respective states and the states collectively forming the federal government, as though you and I got together and created a company. The company's not party to the contract. You and I are party to the contract. And who drafted the contract? The states, Drafted the contract, the people did not. If there's any ambiguity in the contract, by common law principle, it should benefit the people. A little civics lesson there. Um, But always private contracts. The next, the system was built, and I'm talking about the system that we hate, but it was built to favor three things when it comes to how money is stolen from you it was built to favor um, entrepreneurship, it was built to favor investment. And it was built to favor real estate when structured properly. It was built to do that because it was built by people who sit on their ass all day, paid with public money, and have lots of access to lots of things to leverage into those three worlds. And they're paid to pass laws by people that only exist in those three worlds. All those lobbyists work for corporations who make their money through entrepreneurship, investing, in real estate. So it just stands to reason that they built the system to, when you're inside the system, to favor those three things. Those are the ways to keep the most of your wealth, build the most of your wealth, and pay the least in taxes. And any accountant that tells you that's not true is stupid and shouldn't be your accountant. Any tax attorney that tells you that's not true is stupid and shouldn't be your tax attorney. What does that mean? It means that we should be participating in all of those or some of those because if we're going to interact with them where well, we have to follow their rules to some degree we want to do it from the strength the most strength filled position we can and there are no there's no fourth one there passive investing ie capital gains is taxed less than labor and it always will be because it benefits them to do so real estate you can make tons of money in real estate and literally pay no taxes just as former president donald trump Right. Um, And then entrepreneurship turns many things that would be spending in your life to expenses in your business. Everything is designed for that. So where we interact, though we would prefer not to at all, but where we do, that's how we should interact. The next thing is sometimes we just need to shut the fuck up and do our work in silence. Not everything that we do that's in defiance of the state needs a billboard on a highway that says that we're doing it. Back during the time period where uh, it was illegal to own gold in the United States, there was a, a famous protester, I don't remember his name now, but he like went up on an overpass and had a picture of himself holding up a bar of gold and said, I dare you to arrest me. Sometimes that makes sense. Most of the time it doesn't. If you are acting against the state successfully, And you have a a good enterprise from doing so. Shut your fucking mouth and go on about your business in that gray market, black market world. And then do your activity within the state system as an entrepreneur, as an investor, or as a holder and investor in real estate. And keep those words separated from each other. I know that sounds some, somewhat defeatist to some people, but it's not defeatism, it's smart. It's why all the mafia bosses in all the movies you've ever watched about the mafia always tell the, the, the flatfoot that's trying to arrest them, I'm running a legitimate business. And then there's a legitimate business with legitimate books. Learn! They put the whole template right in front of you, put it in a movie to entertain you. It's actually more educational than what you'll get in school. I'm just saying Sometimes we need to shut up. We don't need to always directly go out and flaunt our defiance. Sometimes we should, many times we shouldn't. Know the difference. Next, get your kids out of the government schools now. Do not send your children to Caesar for an education and be shocked that they come home as Romans. There is one thing you can do, and one thing only, that will have the greatest effect on starting that seventh generation cascade, and that is take away their ability to brainwash your fucking kids, stop making excuses as to why you can't do it, and figure out how. As soon as you say you can't, you shut your mind off. That's not anarcho-thinking. How can I? You ask that question long enough, I don't know what the answer will be, but I do know you'll find one. And and, and the beauty of it is, instead of me telling you how to do it, by you asking that question, you will find the answer that will work for you and your family. The answer that works for me and my family probably won't work for you. We are different people. We live in different places. We have different careers. We have different income levels. We have different levels of wealth. You might be way wealthier than me or way poorer than me. I don't know. But I do know that 90% of Americans spent an awful lot of time in the past year with their children getting their education at home. Whatever you needed to do to figure out how to do it, you probably already did so. Figure it out. Take your children away from them. I cannot emphasize how important this is. How can the 7th generation live with what we're trying to build if we give the second generation to the state to control, to brainwash? And the answer is it can't. This will be the first step. The first generation that the majority say, no, you shall not do these things to my children. Screw off. You will not touch them. You will not have them. They are not yours. You do not get them. That's when the seventh generation clock starts. That means right now it ain't started yet. We're even being whimsical at 7th generation. I'm just trying to get you on the right path. Take your children away from them. They do not they are not worthy of your children. They're not worthy of your they see your children as dollar signs. Dollar signs. Do you know when you pull your kid out of school, that school gets about $15,000 less a year. Take your children away from them. Enough said. Next don't make your life harder by where you choose to live and how you grow your and where you grow your life. We'll talk about that next week with strategic relocation. But don't go moving to like an HOA in the middle of a heavily regulated city, in the middle of a democrat controlled city, in the middle of a democrat controlled state, and then whine and bitch that you can't even own a chicken. Of course you can't. You made a dumb decision. If you've already made that decision, figure out how to get out of there. I mean One thing we have in this country that very few countries actually have is a true republic structure. And that republic structure results in sometimes moving across the road, removing or causing dozens of laws to either affect or not affect you. I I, I literally live in a different world than people that live less than one mile from me. Less than one mile from me, there are people that live in a town called Lakeside. They have... A local ordinance book this thick. For those that aren't aren't online watching the video, they are listening to the audio, I'm about two and a half inches thick of local ordinances that apply to the city of Lakeside that do not apply to me at all. I don't even have codes where I live. They live a mile away. I don't live in the middle of nowhere. Be strategic about where you live because otherwise you are starting a game that's already stacked against you and you're giving points to your opponent. It's like going in and playing somebody in darts and you have a handicap of 15, and they have a handicap of 25, and you give them six marks, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. They should be giving you like eight. Don't do that to yourself. Next, and this is the most important one, and it's going to sound a little weird after all this preaching, right? But don't get a messiah complex. And what I mean by that is, yes, I'm, I'm making a case for anarchy and living this way today. But you're choosing to listen to this. I'm not out knocking on your door metaphorically and saying, have you heard the good news about our Lord and Savior, the anarchy? Right? And and it happens, I think, to anarchists the same way it happens to libertarians, for the same reason, but at a different level. So if I take it back to libertarianism, you know, I remember when I first heard about libertarianism. At the time, I considered myself a, a small government Republican, which is just dumb. I was stupid. I mean honestly, I was completely stupid. There's no such thing as a small government Republican. Look at every place Republicans are in charge, they may have less government than Democrats, but it's massive shit tons of government. It is a it is like waiting for Santa to bring you Easter eggs, to believe you'll get small government from Republicans. But I was because I didn't I didn't know there was another choice. And somebody sent me a video. I think it was about Ron Paul. And it was before the revolution, right? It was way, way back. And then I learned about libertarianism. I started reading all these books, and I started finding out about, you know, there's a libertarian party. It's been around since the 70s, and you can actually vote for it. And I was like, holy shit! All I got to do is tell people about it. Who else has had this experience that's in one of the chats, right? So you you, you find this, and it's like beautiful music. And you go out and you tell people about it, and they don't want to hear it, and you blame yourself. You know what you think? I, 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 I must be explaining this the wrong way. Because I know most people are like me. I know most people want freedom. I, most, I know most people want to be able to choose the way they live their lives. So I must not be explaining this right. And it's frustrating, and it's a lot like banging your head into a brick wall, until eventually you realize, no, wait a minute. I'm explaining this perfectly fine. I understand what I'm talking about. I'm explaining it perfectly the, person, the people I'm explaining to must not actually want liberty and freedom. They must actually want government, statism, and tyranny. And it's very hard to accept what they do. When you walk all the way to anarchy, which is just an a, a, a honest, logical assessment of true natural order, any human, through their very existence, has a right to be truly free, and should not have their things taken or their property seized, or their body harmed by any other human, and has every right in the world to resist by any means necessary when another human does that to them, and has every right to to seek the assistance of others when that's done to them, if they're not strong enough to do it themselves. Period. And when you realize that, you're like, well, of, of course. Everybody believes this. No, they do not. We are not the majority. These are not people that you can start unplugging from the matrix and red-pilling left and right. They want things the way they are. They just want to win their side of the battle. Remember where we started today. We choose this path due to a moral belief that it is wrong to harm and steal from others the end. Most people in the political system today... Choose their belief based on the, th- the way they want society controlled. Even the Republican that really means what they say when they say it, like I did when I was stupid, that says, you know, I want less government, blah, blah, blah. Start asking them, okay, well, what can we get rid of? And you find real quickly you start talking about getting rid of things and they start wanting to cut your throat. Because, well, what happens when we do this? These other people over here will blah, blah, blah. In other words, you want to control other people. You want to set boundaries for the way other people live their lives. So, what people do, and when they're in that mental state, which is a wholly unnatural state for humans to exist in, is they feel compelled to pick a side. And once they pick that side, they'll just no matter. Have you guys noticed this? No matter how stupid something their guy does, they'll rationalize and defend it. No matter how wrong it is, like, if you just change the initial that goes after the dude's name, they would literally want them hauled out, tarred, feathered, killed, and launched on a rocket to the sun. But their guy did it. So, you know, it's not really that bad. It's just a, it's just a bump stock ban. It's it's okay. Trump's still pro-Second Amendment. Right? Right? Hey, I know he said to take the guns now and do due process later, but, you know, you just have to understand the nuances. It's nonsensical. It's nonsensical, and it's things that they would never allow the other side to do. That tells you you're dealing with an irrational group of people that cannot be reasoned with. You can't reason with them, and I don't mean this in a way like, you know, the people that think there's no difference between a man and a woman, and they've never tried mil- milking a bull, obviously, um, that, 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 are, that are completely idiots, that, that are like, you know, you need to ask me my pronouns before you speak to me, or something like that. Like, I don't mean it that way. I mean that in the end, you can't reason with them. You just can't reason with them because they've denounced reason. Because they feel a need to, to pick a side to affiliate with, and therefore anybody that's not on that side is the enemy. And it's not, I'm on the left and they're on the right, or I'm on the right and they're on the left. It's, I'm here, and anything outside in any direction is the enemy and must be smite, Smited down, right? Must be smitten. we got to get rid of them. They're evil. So don't try to be a messiah. Live your life your way. Learn to play the game uh, that they've set up and stacked in their favor in the way that they play it. Take control of the education of your children. Render on to Caesar that which is Caesar. When you choose to go into Caesar's world, in any place else, sometimes just shut up and go on with your life and build wealth and build happiness in your life and realize you've made this decision because of what you believe from a moral standpoint. And that means you have no need to justify it to anybody. With that, we will wrap up for the week, and I'll be back next week with some new topics on Miyagi Morning. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.